Good evening. Sorry I'm a little late, but um, hopefully you'll appreciate that this time it was three minutes instead of three days late. <laughs> Seems to be some kind of conditioning happening for me with this retreat. Which in some ways ties into what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, I'd like to take some time to just explore an aspect of the practice that's really crucial. And this is the quality of energy or effort. And those of you who are familiar with uh, all the different lists of the Buddha's teachings, you might recognize that it shows up as one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path of right or wise effort. This is the path of practice that the Buddha laid out as a means to find real happiness, real ease and freedom. And in the form of energy or virya, it's one of the seven factors of awakening. Those skillful mental qualities that, when perfectly balanced, support the deepest insights to arise. So before I go into this topic in any more detail, though, I'd like to highlight one quite specific aspect of right effort. And that's the effort it takes to listen to Dharma talks. So the other night, Brian mentioned that this can be a mindfulness practice in and of itself. And I think I'd like to highlight that because these days uh, where everything is so instant and, and so kind of commodified and it's most of us are not used to paying attention in a sustained way for a reasonable period of time. So we do need to pay some attention uh, just to the effort of being present, to receive what's being offered and to stay with the practice of listening more consistently. And I also would like to highlight within this practice of listening uh, something that was true in my own practice that took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was listening with my intellect as if these uh, Dharma talks were somehow almost like bedtime stories that the teachers came up with to entertain us before the end, at the end of a long day of practice. And it was a, a long time before I realized, oh, they're actually giving me suggestions, they're giving me information to do something with, to actually try out in my practice. This is not like a lecture in school or something. These are invitations to actually engage with the practices. So that's partly why the other night I mentioned uh, the Zen uh, instruction of beginner's mind. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And in some ways, all of us here are um, at least beginning experts because you're on a longer retreat. So just to be aware of I know for myself it can be very easy to go, oh, yes, right effort, yep, four Brahma Viharas, noble truths, tick, 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 check, 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 got it. So just to notice, you know, that tendency when we're slipping into, yep, heard that before, and see if you can uh, bring this beginner's mind to it. So this was a very powerful experience I had in the very first Dharma talk that I ever heard, which was about, I think about 20 years or so ago, 
in Australia and it was given by a Zen monk and I'd never been to a Dharma talk before but I saw it advertised in the newspaper and so I went along, I was a little bit nervous, I had no idea what to expect but I had some kind of hope that it might profoundly change my life and this Zen master was Japanese and his English was a little bit hard to understand But I still remember the opening line of his talk 20 years later. He said, Good evening, everyone. I hope tonight that you'll be deeply disappointed. (laughs) And as soon as I heard this word disappointed, my mind scrambled, thinking, Oh no, the poor guy. You know, what what could he have meant to say? Like (laughs) And I was trying to think of all these English words that sounded like disappointment but didn't mean that. And finally, I realized that was exactly what he meant. (laughs) Now, I'm not a Zen practitioner, and that was the first Dharma talk I'd ever heard. So it's possible that I totally misunderstood what he was pointing to. But my sense was what he was saying could be interpreted in a few different ways. And one was that he was asking us to look at any assumption we might have that he was going to give us all the answers. In effect, he was saying, if you expect me to enlighten you, right there is delusion. Because, as I think you know, all of us have to do this work for ourselves. Even the Buddha himself, he didn't have the power to transform someone's life for them. He could offer the teachings as clearly as possible, but the person themselves, we ourselves, still have to put them into practice. So that's one way I understand what this Zen master was saying. And a second way that I understood it was as an invitation to try and see through our preconceptions, our delusions and our assumptions about every aspect of this path. And it's true that sometimes when we start to see through our delusions, our fantasies, there can be a kind of disappointment But it's a healthy disappointment because we're seeing through delusion and seeing more clearly. So coming back to this listening with awareness, there's a very significant dimension of listening as a practice is to try to listen without our prejudgments, all of our assumptions and expectations and concepts and views and opinions that can get in the way of what's actually being said. And this too, it takes effort to come back to beginner's mind and to try to hear what's being said as if for the very first time. And then being willing to hear what might be challenging and to see if we can let go of some of the assumptions that might be getting in the way of seeing clearly. So it takes effort to listen to this talk and it takes effort in the practice generally just to keep showing up and meeting whatever we experience with as much balance of heart and mind as possible. So throughout the retreat so far, we've really been pointing to this need for balance in our practice. And as Brian mentioned the other night, the Buddha himself framed his teachings in terms of the middle way. So not falling into self-indulgence on one hand, nor into self-punishment in the form of excessive striving on the other. 
and learning how to stay balanced through the constantly changing circumstances of our lives and our practice is one way of framing the whole goal. So tonight I would like to explore this um, quality of energy or virya, to use the Pali word. And this word virya is usually translated as effort or energy. Sometimes we see it referred to as heroic effort or tireless energy, strength, courage, vigor, perseverance and persistence. So the word virya actually shares the same root as the English words virile and warrior. And those of you who are familiar with yoga, you might know the warrior's pose or the hero's pose, uh, virabhadrasana. And it's, um, again, there's the, that root vir, V-I-R, which relates to heroic effort or tireless energy. And before we go any further, I'd just like to take a moment to pause and to invite you to take a moment to notice if there are any responses in your own beings, your own body, heart, mind, when you hear phrases such as tireless energy or right effort or heroic effort, perseverance. Just to notice if those words have any particular effect. Because for some people, a common response to hearing about effort or energy might be something like, oh no, here we go, a performance review. They obviously think I'm not trying hard enough. They're going to start talking about their time in Burma again when they only got four (laughs) hours of sleep a night. But I feel exhausted just thinking about it. In fact, I think I'll go to bed as soon as this talk's over. For other people, it might be more like, finally, the real practice. Enough of all that fluffy stuff about relaxing and being kind to yourself. There's only five and a half weeks left now, so I'd better really crank it up. I think I'll try for three hours sleep tonight. (laughs) And perhaps for some other people, there might be no particular response. So if that's you, you can abide in equanimity for the rest of the talk. (laughs) But whatever your response might have been, I invite you just to kind of bookmark it as um, to come back to later as possibly useful information. Because for many of us, this word effort can bring up all kinds of conscious or unconscious views and self-views. And if we're not aware of them, they can drive our practice in ways that often are not so skillful. So, because we have human bodies and minds, we don't have an unlimited supply of energy. And part of the skill of the practice is knowing how and when to apply it in the most effective way, in this balance, in the middle way, not too much, not too little. And this midpoint can be surprisingly difficult to find, perhaps because, as Brian alluded to the other night, our dominant culture is so much one of perfectionism and competitiveness and striving and busyness and constant doing. So it's not surprising that when we hear phrases like right effort, 
it can very easily trigger a sense of inadequacy or self-judgment, not good enough, should try harder, and so on. At least this was true for me early on in my own practice. Whenever I heard the phrase, right effort, I'd immediately think blood, sweat, and tears, and not even realize that I was fixated on the effort part and totally overlooking the right part, the wise part. And so I would uh, practice with really grim determination. And I've seen this tendency in a lot of the students that I work with too, that we seem to be very binary creatures somehow, where it's all or nothing, good or bad, right and wrong, success and failure. So we often start out our practice with a excess of zeal that's not very sustainable in the long term. So making too much effort is one very common way that we get out of balance. And especially on retreat, we might see this as a a phase of intense striving. And we try extra hard to go to every single sitting, every walking. We get up early, we stay up late. Maybe this lasts for a day or two, but often it's uh, followed by a sort of a collapse into exhausted apathy. Then there's some period of recovery and then we start the whole cycle over and over again, striving, apathy, striving, apathy. And this seems to be so common that I think of it as what I call from superhero to slug syndrome. Because it seems to be driven by a fear that unless I'm making 110% effort, unless I keep desperately trying to be a superhero, I'm going to stall completely and become that slug again which ironically is often what happens because we totally exhaust ourselves in this effort to be superhuman. So learning to recognize, am I forcing the practice in some way? We might see this in individual sittings. So sometimes when the bell rings at the end of the sitting, perhaps there's a wave of relief. And that could be a sign of perhaps trying too hard Because if you look at the moment before the bell rings and the moment after the bell rings, they're the same. It's equal opportunity to practice mindfulness. And yet often we sit almost with this clenched teeth determination to be mindful and the bell rings and the whole thing falls apart. So that's one place you might look. On the other hand, sometimes the bell rings and we realize we've been asleep for the last 42 and a half minutes. So that might be a sign of perhaps being on the other side of um, not overshooting the mark, but not making quite enough effort in the sitting. So finding this sustainable balanced effort is really important. And perhaps uh, some of you are familiar with Sayadaw Utejaniya's example of the two hands touching. So when our hands are just lightly together, we can know our hands are touching. It really doesn't take a lot of effort. But I know for myself, in the beginning, I'd be sitting going, yes, hands are touching, touching. And there was so much extra unnecessary tension. So just to bring awareness to how much effort am I actually making with this mindfulness Because if there's too much striving, the corollary is often we get into sinking mind where we mind just becomes very dull. It relates to the hindrance of sloth and torpor. So the 
those of you who perhaps English is not your first language, sloth is this old-fashioned word for sluggishness, dullness, heaviness. And there's an animal, the sloth, who kind of embodies this very slow energy. Because I've spent a bit of time in Australia, I also think of the koala as an example of this. So perhaps you've seen koalas in wildlife parks or nature documentaries. And you might see they live up high in eucalyptus trees and they often sit in the fork of a tree and they kind of... And it's like they have just enough energy to not actually fall out of the tree, but there's not a lot else going on. And sometimes we can feel that kind of energy in our sittings as well. We're just almost on the point of falling into our neighbor's lap, but not quite. (laughs) So I'm giving these different examples just as an invitation for all of us to look at our own practice and see what are my own default tendencies, not to judge them because this is completely normal, but to know what they are so that we can bring them back to balance. And this process of finding balance between too much and not enough effort was true even for the Buddha himself. Again, Brian touched into this the other night when he talked about the Buddha beginning his practice with some pretty hardcore austerity practices that brought him really to the close to death before he began to realize this perhaps is not the most balanced approach. And it was the memory of sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree as a young boy and spontaneously slipping into deep absorption, into jhana, and experiencing skillful mental pleasure that really helped him review and see what he was doing. And it said that not long after that, he woke up, he realized Nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So I think it's significant that after this, the first teaching he gave after his enlightenment was this teaching on the middle way. So I think most of us have some um, familiarity, perhaps with a tendency towards self-indulgence, which the Buddha pointed to as one way that we get off off balance. The uh, self-torture that the Buddha practiced is not so familiar to us, but the psychological self-torture perhaps is. As I mentioned earlier, we're often our own worst enemies, constantly judging and criticizing and undermining ourselves. But the Buddha gave the analogy of learning to tune an instrument when he was talking to a monk who had, uh, was really struggling, trying far too hard and not actually making progress. This monk was uh, named Sona and he had been a lute player in, before he became a monk. So he went to the Buddha for advice and the Buddha said to him, well, when you wanted to get a beautiful sound from your lute, did you tune tune it too tight? And of course, no. Did you tune it too loose? Of course, no. You listen to the sound of the lute and you adjust it until you find you can hit the right note. And what I appreciate about that metaphor is the invitation to listen So this practice of listening to our own bodies, our hearts, our minds, and to recognize in each moment what is too tight, 
what's too loose? And how can we find appropriate and balanced effort? And then just like with an instrument, we don't tune an instrument once and then that's it for the rest of our lives. Conditions are constantly changing, so we have to keep looking now in this sitting, in the sitting next week, or for those of you who've been here a while, the effort you needed to make four weeks ago compared to now. The effort when we're sick or tired, it's constantly changing. So this practice of tuning in is a very powerful aspect of practicing virya, working also with right effort. So I've been inviting you to notice your own default tendencies. And one of the challenges in giving a talk like this is some of what I say tonight is going to apply to the people who have a tendency to be too tight and some to those who have a tendency to be too loose. And I know from my own experience, though, that we tend to hear what we want to hear. So I was trying to work out how can I get the too tight people to just hear this bit and the two loose people to just hear this bit and not the other way around. So, invitation if you can to really tune into the pieces that are most appropriate for you and not have the two loose people go, yes, I think I'll uh, lie back tomorrow because she said don't try so hard. And the two tight people go, right, she said I need to really put in more effort. I'm going to do four hours sleep tonight. See if you can find the opposite tendency, one that will help you come back to this middle way. So I'll just say a little more about the tendency to begin with uh, to making too much effort and ways to back off. So for myself, that was the initial pattern of making too much effort and I had to really work with that. Seeing it also, as I said, as part of our many, for many of us, our um, dominant culture conditioning of bringing a very goal-oriented attitude to our practice. So we're constantly evaluating what, how our practice is supposed to be, how it's supposed to unfold, how we're supposed to look, what's supposed to be happening. Usually, though, what's actually happening looks quite different from our expectations. So then the flip side of expectations come up and we experience disappointment and doubt and self-judgment. A lot of energy gets consumed in anxiety and wondering if we're doing it right and comparing ourselves to other people, even though we have no clue what's actually happening in their minds. So we often, this striving often results in feelings of inadequacy and even self-hatred that can turn our whole meditation practice into a massive self-improvement project. But often those same unseen beliefs that are driving the striving in the first place feed the unworthiness, so we try harder to overcome it, and then we judge ourselves as failing, and we get more caught in the unworthiness, and then we try even harder, and so on and so on. can be exhausting. So how do we get out of this cycle? First, we need to really bring awareness to what's going on. To recognize, as I've been inviting, these default patterns, what's happening in our bodies and our hearts and our minds, and how we're relating to our experience. So again, as Sado Tejaniya emphasizes, just to notice what's the attitude in the mind 
to recognize, is there some form of wanting or expectation, or perhaps some form of not wanting or resistance? And often these attitudes are just sort of out of, just behind, but they're still driving or influencing our practice. So this superhero to slug syndrome, when we look at it more carefully, often what we can find underneath is that this fear, fear of backsliding, fear of becoming that slug that we used to be. So if you happen to notice this in your own practice, you might even ask yourself, well, who would I be if I wasn't making so much effort? Who would I be if I didn't try quite so hard? And just listen for the intuitive answer and perhaps any uh, emotional response that might come up. Perhaps a twinge of anxiety or fear. And if so, can you meet this with self-compassion? Whatever you recognize, it's important not to take it personally because so much of this is coming from our cultural conditioning It's not our own individual shortcoming or our own unique neurosis or failure. So trying to meet this striving pattern with kindness is a very powerful antidote. So last night I mentioned the two wings of awakening being wisdom and compassion. From time to time we might need to really strengthen the self-compassion wing to meet the um, over-efforting habit. And again, not to turn this into another self-improvement project. Oh, now I've got to be self-compassionate because I'm too striving. We're just getting caught in the same energy. But to just gently bring coming back to balance. So, so far I've been talking mostly about the imbalance of too much effort. But there are also times when we find the pendulum swinging the other way and we might slide into complacency. For some of us, lack of effort is more our default pattern. And at times this can happen when we've got caught in the superhero to slug syndrome and we've um, made too much effort and then we just collapse and back off, retreat into our comfort zones. And on one level, this is totally natural. Of course, we love comfort. And given the choice, most of us would probably quite happily stay in our comfort zones forever if we could. So one Tibetan teacher complained about this with his students. He said he was constantly telling them to wake up, but they were like marsupials, just trying to wiggle back down into the pouch and stay there. And I think, well... I'll speak for myself, there is something in me that would quite like to be able to be a marsupial and wiggle back down into the pouch and stay there. But even if that were possible, the downside of staying within our comfort zones is that over time they actually get smaller. And even on retreat where our options for comfort are relatively limited, have you noticed how quickly we develop strategies for navigating things. So we have our favorite seat in the dining room. We have our favorite place to walk or our favorite clothes to wear. And we set up a routine for ourselves of when to nap and when to shower and when to take tea and when to snack. And if any of this gets thrown off in any way, wow, we can get quite upset. So we all have our own strategies for 
maximizing comfort and avoiding discomfort. And sometimes as meditation becomes more and more mainstream, sometimes it's presented actually um, almost in service, almost like a magic wand that if you just wave some mindfulness over everything, then you'll live happily ever after. And sometimes this is uh, sort of conflated with self-care and self-care becomes a way of rationalizing self-indulgence. And this is not to say that at times it is absolutely important and crucial to ease up and to take care of ourselves, but this needs to be done with discernment. And I know for myself that it can be a slippery slope at times, especially during longer retreats, I've noticed that I can um, rationalize letting go of the schedule because, you know, it's good to not be so bound to the rigidity and I'm going to be a free agent and I'm just going to sit one and then nap one and then sit half of one and nap two and then it becomes sit a bit and then nap for most of the day and before long it's like the whole morning is going by and hmm, it's very interesting to see how lack of effort actually conditions the diminishing of effort. So just to notice sometimes if there is that little voice of rationalizing and um, justifying where it's really important just to uh, take it too easy at times. And we might ask ourselves if we're starting to notice self, genuine self-care sliding into self-indulgence to really reconnect with our deepest aspirations. I don't know if um, together at the start of the retreat, because unfortunately I missed it, but sometimes we invite you to really connect with a sense of what brought you here and what is your aspiration for this practice period, this very precious opportunity to practice for six weeks or three months. And we're already, all of us, moving in the direction of the freedom that the Buddha offered us. And this freedom is not so much about getting comfortable by constantly manipulating our external conditions. Rather, it comes from training our inner capacity to let go and to let be. And when we can do this, we're not so dependent on things out there being a certain way in order for us to be happy. But if our default strategy has always been to avoid discomfort, then when we run into life's inevitable challenges, we won't have developed the inner resources to meet them. So at some point, we will find ourselves in situations where our usual strategies either aren't available or they don't work anymore. And eventually, all of us are going to have to face into our own aging and illness and death and Some of us are already dealing with some fairly serious challenges. So to use an analogy, I think of it as a bit like lifting weights. You can probably tell I'm not a weightlifter, but it makes sense that if we're learning to lift weights, we don't start with 50 pounds. We start with five or or 10 and we gradually work our capacity. We gradually expand our comfort zones to be able to deal with more and more of life's challenges. 
So here on retreat, we do have a valuable opportunity to train in stretching our comfort zones. And again, to do this with kindness or humor, recognizing that it is, it's just human nature to take the easy option if we have a choice. So there's an invitation just to notice how we might let go, for example, of some of our attachment to sense pleasures, to release them rather than feed them, to move in the direction of relinquishment or non-addiction, as Joseph Goldstein likes to refer to renunciation. And when we can do this, we might actually find that we often uh, experience quite a deep sense of contentment that's more sustaining, more satisfying than most of our usual creature comforts are. So on the physical level, there's the invitation to practice simplifying and experimenting with not indulging every passing sense desire. And on the mental level too, we can begin to explore some of the ways that we try to stay within our mental comfort zones clinging to those views and opinions and perceptions and judgments and beliefs and identities that I mentioned earlier. And underneath all of that, there is often that core sense of self, the identity that we're trying to protect in various ways. So sometimes when we hear this invitation to practice renunciation on different levels to stretch our comfort zones, we might notice some twinges of reactivity, perhaps some form of anxiety or fear. So sometimes right effort, energy does involve the willingness to turn and face into our fears, to feel the fear and do it anyway, as the old cliche goes. Because uh, as I think all of you know by now, there are phases of our practice that can be quite challenging. And at those times, we might need to more consciously call up the heroic aspect of heroic effort to really tune into this virya that's expressed as courage. Sometimes though, we might feel that we don't yet have the necessary virya, fear and doubt can set in. And if we can't access our own inner resources, perhaps we might need to look outside for role models. This has been true in my own practice at times uh, when there was uh, stronger challenges coming up. Sometimes for some people, actually thinking of the example of the Buddha can bring inspiration. For other people, the Buddha might feel quite remote. So you might think of perhaps your own teachers, your benefactor or spiritual friends, people who have perhaps, you have a sense that they've been through this terrain, they've walked this path and they've come out through some of the challenges that we're going through, come out the other side in good shape. So at times consciously bringing to mind people who inspire us can help us meet those more challenging phases of practice. At other times, we might consciously look back over the development of our own practice and see, yes, there has been progress. Yes, I have met difficulties before, and this too shall pass. And as we 
do that, we see that all of the challenges that we've faced in the past have actually strengthened us and allowed us to be at the point where we are today. So this too can help to meet those difficult phases. We might even recognize that the times of the greatest challenge were also the times when we learned and grew and deepened into the Dharma the most. So sometimes we see these cycles of um, challenge and release playing out quite strongly in the context of a longer retreat like this. And for me, it was very helpful to hear one teacher talk about what she called cycles of purity and purification. I think it was Michelle McDonald who first um, talked about it this way for me, and I found that really helpful. So the so-called... This is really the understanding that there are natural cycles or rhythms that the practice goes through. So the so-called purification stage is when we have to deal with challenges of various kinds, usually different forms of the hindrances that uh, probably many of you are familiar with, sometimes what we call a multiple hindrance attack, when we just are assailed by all kinds of afflictive energies. So we spend some period of time wrestling with these challenges and then at some point they release and we find ourselves in what's called the purity stage where there's often a sense of new, deeper ease and new understanding and sometimes even bliss, clarity, openness and calm. And often when we experience this as a natural tendency to think, finally, now I'm getting somewhere, now I've got it sorted, this is going to be great for the rest of the retreat. Hmm. (laughs) I think most of you have some sense of how that plays out. (laughs) That often in the very next sitting, or at least within a few hours, perhaps a day or two, it feels like everything falls apart. And one teacher said, there's nothing that ruins the rest of your retreat quite so much as having a good sitting. (laughs) So we can really get a sense of that, that these cycles of purity and purification, if we can recognize that they are natural cycles and that when we slip back into the purification phase, it's not that we've done something wrong. It's just the natural rhythm of the practice opening and deepening. And when we recognize that, it's not quite such a roller coaster ride, and we can make space for these kind of feeling of pendulum swings, and eventually they don't feel quite so extreme. So, when we are in these more uh, refined states, because they are skillful and they're not threatening to our well being in any way. Sometimes there's a tendency to not even really notice them. To, um, I think many of you are familiar with this concept of the mind's inherent negativity bias, the neuroscience understanding that we tend to pay a lot more attention to what's unpleasant and challenging than to what is pleasant and easeful. And sometimes when we first start to move into these phases of more refined mental states, we might not even notice the um, presence of these more skillful states, states such as kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, calm or confidence, energy, wisdom. 
So at this stage in the practice, we might need to more consciously try to refine our awareness to take in these more skillful states. And just the act of recognizing them makes them stronger. Similar to the analogy of the Hubble telescope that I gave last night. In the beginning, these might feel quite faint and distant, but as we learn to recognize them, we can amplify them and have them become stronger and deeper and more stable. And then they become resources that build confidence in the practice and our own capacity to do it. So at this phase in the practice, we need to really refine our virya, our energy or effort, so that we don't overshoot the mark. And again, because of our default tendency often to get too involved and too busy and trying too hard and sort of micromanaging, uh, we can actually interfere with the calm and the quiet and the tranquility that are developing. So we need to notice if there's that sense of, well, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, what do I do now? And recognize that as somehow pushing the river instead of just settling back and refining our mindfulness to meet these more skillful states. So there's one more caveat about working with effort and energy here, that sometimes when we start to recognize these wholesome states, we also start to recognize how pleasant they are. And once we do acquire the taste for them, there can be quite subtle levels of grasping and greed and wanting them to last. And then on the other side, of course, disappointment or aversion when inevitably they disappear at some point. So here again, we have to be even more careful to remember that none of this is personal. It's not that we've done something wrong. We're just experiencing the truth of impermanence. So being on the lookout for when that sense of I gets involved, trying to micromanage my practice and to control outcomes. Because all we can really do is set up the conditions to incline the heart and the mind in the right direction and then, as best we can, let go of attachment to results. So as a, another Zen teacher put it, enlightenment is an accident. Meditation makes you accident-prone. So this kind of uh, what's sometimes referred to as effortless effort is actually a fruit of the practice. And at these times we can experience something that feels quite spontaneous, an unexpected releasing of dukkha, of stress, of distress, a few moments then of pure happiness. And sometimes this relief can feel quite new and unfamiliar and it can take a bit of getting used to. And I heard that um, the Tibetan word for meditation literally means getting used to it. And I love that because we can interpret that in a lot of different ways. But I think of it in this phase of the practice as getting used to these perhaps new and unfamiliar states. Sometimes too, because these states are unfamiliar, we might notice a kind of a backlash, that cynical doubting voice that undermines or goes into overdrive to figure out what the insight is and what it means and where we're up to and so on. 
Sometimes we can even find ourselves trying to go back to the previous misery because we've so mu- invested so much energy in it and in some ways it feels so familiar. We're so used to grappling with the hindrances that when they're absent, we literally don't know what to do with ourselves. With practice though, as we get used to these states, we can recognize, we learn not to believe these reactions and to really recognize the deeper truths about who we are. We come closer to what we might call our Buddha nature, our highest human capacity. And it's possible uh, for some of you that when we hear this kind of language that it seems remote or abstract or distant. But again, this is where we might uh, challenge our own sense of what's possible, our own self-perceptions and self-views and beliefs. And in this regard, I like to think of the Buddha's own life, what we can know of it from the discourses. And I imagine what my own life would have been like if he had not chosen to go beyond what his family told him was possible, remembering that his father wanted him to continue the family lineage and to continue being a prince, to live a life of utmost luxury. But the Buddha chose not to follow what his family told him was possible. He chose to go beyond what society around him told him was possible. And even after he left the palace and studied with all those different teachers, the foremost teachers of his age, of his era, even these teachers, he went beyond what they told him was possible. And then even though he knew it would be difficult, he made the choice to teach what he'd learned. And I sometimes think if at any of those stages he had chosen to take the easy option, none of us would be sitting here tonight in this room, in this evening. So we all, we've started following in the Buddha's footsteps. Just an invitation to all of us to, let's keep going. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's uh, just sit in silence for a few moments, letting the words, the ideas, just drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.